Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, I'm Meg Wallitzer, Selected Shorts' really funny host. Really. But this week, I'm stepping out of the limelight as people even funnier move up. Guest host Jane Curtin introduces a show featuring comedian Mike Birbiglia and poet Jay Hope Stein. Jen's an introvert. I'm an extrovert. An extrovert is someone who gets energy from being around other people, and an introvert doesn't like you. This week on Selected Shorts, Opposites Attract. Mike Birbiglia and J. Hope Stein bring us jokes and poems from David Sedaris, Simon Rich, Zadie Smith, and others. Stay with us. I'm Jane Curtin, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. On this edition of Selected Shorts, a celebration of love, children, jokes, and poems. This unusual format is inspired by two artists who complement one another in lovely ways, Mike Berbiglia and J. Hope Stein. Berbiglia is a comedian and filmmaker whose works include Sleepwalk With Me and My Girlfriend's Boyfriend. Stein is a poet whose titles include Occasionally I Remove Your Brain From Your Nose and Little Astronaut. But their dynamic isn't just about contrasting modes of artistic expression. These two are also married and have a child together. Their journey into parenthood evolved into a show and book both called The New One. In this show, we'll hear excerpts from The New One, as well as additional poetry and short stories from some of Berbiglia and Stein's favorite writers. Berbiglia has done plenty of work on the radio, so during the live show... He had our medium in mind. Here, Mike Berbiglia and J. Hope Stein introduce themselves, the show itself, and ease right into excerpts from The New One. We're honored to be here at Symphony Space hosting Selected Shorts this evening. We've been listening to Selected Shorts forever. We recently formed an offshoot. I can't believe we're doing this joke right now. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Formed an an offshoot show called Selected Shirts. It's for people who wear the same shirt every day, who want to mix it up, but they need to be shown the shirts being worn by someone who they wouldn't expect to wear that shirt. And that's how we arrived. It's called Selected Shirts. We joked about the idea of doing that joke. Yeah, I didn't know you were going to do it. I'm surprised. It was kind of a private joke, but... We're a little nervous. We never hosted anything together before. Jen's an introvert. I'm an extrovert. An extrovert is someone who gets energy from being around other people, and an introvert doesn't like you. Uh, Or she might like you, but she's going to need me to explain why we're leaving the party. Jen is a poet. She writes under a pseudonym. It's Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> no, it's J. Hope Stein. But a few years ago, we started writing a show and then a book called The New One about our journey into becoming... Oh, thanks! <laughs> ...into becoming parents. So tonight we thought for Selected Shorts, what two better art forms to combine than comedy and poetry into an evening of jokes and poems, which to our knowledge doesn't exist. <laughs> We're recording this for the radio, and uh, you might know that. Jen hasn't said a lot so far, so I want radio listeners to understand like how much Jen is contributing to this moment uh, in spirit. So like, by a round of applause, how much do you think Jen is bringing to this performance? Oh, you get the idea, radio listeners. <laughs> Sometimes shy people can be far more powerful than outgoing fools. 
So to give you some background on the new one, it's autobiographical, it's based on our lives, and the first half of the story is an elaborate case for why no one should ever have a child. <laughs> and the second half is about how we had a child and how I was right. And, <laughs> and, then, how, and then how I was wrong. And so the first poem in the book is after our daughter Una was born. Her name is Una, which means one, as in we're only having one. And, <laughs> And one day I came home from Rite Aid with diapers and cat litter, and Jen is crying on the couch, and I say, Chloe, her name's Jen, I say, Chloe, what's wrong? And Jen says, Una's never going to be in my belly again. And that week I found this poem. Little Astronaut. A newborn rests her head on the earth of mother. Everything else is outer space. It was the most profound love that I had ever witnessed, and I was there too. Uh, I was this pudgy, milkless vice president of the family, huge title, no power, also overseas Congress. And um, in the book, I explain all the reasons I never wanted to have a child. Number one, I love my marriage. Number two, my body is a lemon. Number three, I don't know anything. Number four, I have a cat. Number five, I have a job. Number six, there shouldn't be children anymore. Number seven, people aren't great. Tonight I'm going to read reason number one, which is in a chapter of the new one called I Love My Marriage. I feel lucky to have found my wife. I never thought I'd meet anyone who would put up with me. I thought I'd find someone who would pretend to be okay with me and then try to change me, fail, and then divorce me, but that didn't happen. Jen loves me back. One time, Jen was rubbing my neck, and I, I said, do I feel more tense than usual? And Jen said, you've been 80 to 100% tense since the day we met. <laughs> and I thought, she really gets me. <laughs> when Jen and I first met, our work schedules didn't match, and Jen worked 9 to 6 in an office building overlooking the Hudson and I, I was on the road about 70% of the time doing shows. And to make matters worse, when I was in New York City, I was performing at night. So I, stay with me, showed up at her job every day without an invitation <laughs> for two and a half weeks. In current times, this would be called stalking. <laughs> at the time, it was called stalking. <laughs> so I'd show up at Jen's work with flowers, and I'd pop into the conference room or her office. Jen would be mortified. She'd whisk me out to Pier 60, and we would make out on the promenade. And the first time this happened, Jen's phone dropped out of her pocket mid-kiss. Prank calls from Fish. The first time my husband kissed me, my cell phone fell out of my pocket into the Hudson River. And to this day, I still receive prank calls from Fish. <laughs> True story. True story, yeah. Both parts. <laughs> Jen writes under a pseudonym. It's J. Hope Stein, but I've coaxed Jen into revealing her pseudonym for our book, which means she plans to write under a new, even more secrety pseudonym upon publication. One night, Jen came home from a poetry reading, and I asked her how it went, and she said, there was no microphone, and because my voice was so quiet, no one could hear me. So for our first anniversary, I bought her a microphone and a portable amplifier to bring to her readings. And on the box, I placed a card that read, Dear J. Hope Stein, your voice needs to be heard. Jen is truly one of a kind. Nearly every aspect of her is anomalous. I travel for my job, and she likes it when I'm away. <laughs> I get tickets to cool events. She likes to stay home. Jen likes salad. She's not eating it as a punishment for eating pizza. She enjoys lettuce as food. Solitude is her oxygen and salad is her sunlight, which is all to say, I love my marriage. And I'm not saying it's perfect. I think all marriages have an undercurrent of tension at all times because you have two people experiencing many of the same events at the same time. And then you have two completely different memories of the same event. <laughs> a few years ago, we were in a hotel elevator in Chicago, and I remembered that on the lobby level, there was a cafe that Jen and I loved a few years before. 
And I said, Chloe, I just remembered you love the cafe at this hotel. And Jen said, who did? <laughs> and I thought, oh no. Because the subtext of who did was A, that wasn't me. B, that was another woman you were dating. And C, I'm not happy about this. <laughs> we get to the lobby and the elevator doors open and Jen says, oh yeah, I love this cafe. <laughs> it's a great cafe. It's a good one. I thought I nearly died in the elevator. I almost had a heart attack two minutes ago and you just casually remembered I'm right. <laughs> so now, whenever Jenna and I have a shared memory that isn't exactly the same, one of us says the phrase who did, which is our way of saying we're both probably wrong. <laughs> I love my marriage. And look, I don't fall for these wedding cliches where people say two become one. But I do feel like if you're lucky in a relationship, there are moments, and I mean moments. Like this is a moment. That was a moment. There are moments where you feel as if your souls are colliding in a way that no two souls have collided in the history of humankind, and you think, how did I get this lucky? Jen and I hate going to parties, but we love driving away from parties. <laughs> A few years ago, we went to our friend Katie's birthday, and this lady got up and gave a speech, which isn't a thing. And that's why I remember it so well. She said, last year, Katie and I went scuba diving, and her oxygen tank got stuck in the rocks, and I wriggled it free, and I may have saved her life. I saved your best friend's life. And Jen and I lock eyes from across the room and telepathically project the sentence, we're going to talk about this for years. <laughs> And we have, here's how it comes up. Whenever Jen and I do something sweet for one another, like I have a serious sleepwalking disorder that requires me to sleep in a sleeping bag, for real. And sometimes she'll zip me up in the sleeping bag and she'll say, it's time to put you in your pod. And I'll say, thanks. And she'll say, I saved your best friend's life. And it's never not funny. It literally has never not been funny. I don't want to give that up. I don't want that to change. I don't want a third person showing up and saying, what about me? I'm like, we don't even know you. <laughs> Which is all to say I'm married to someone who gets prank calls from fish and has visited a special little cafe in Chicago twice, whether she remembers it or not. I'm married to the Clark Kent of poetry who has saved my best friend's life and for many years shared with me the solidarity that we would never have children. I didn't want to lose that. I didn't want that to change. That was comic and writer Mike Birbiglia and his partner, the poet J-Hope Stein, performing segments of their book, The New One. Now we're going to hear from a favorite writer of Berbiglia's, and I'd wager a favorite of a lot of you listening, the dazzling David Sedaris. In addition to essay collections including Naked and Me Talk Pretty One Day, Sedaris has written fiction too. This is a piece from his book of animal fables, Squirrel Seeks Chipmunk, and it's performed by a comic who has appeared on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and on the series The Good Wife. While the piece isn't risque, just a heads up, there's a mention of animal anatomy. Here's The Cat and the Baboon by David Sedaris, performed by Carmen Lynch. The cat had a party to attend and went to the baboon to get herself groomed. What kind of party? the baboon asked and she massaged the cat's neck in order to relax her, the way she did with all her customers. Hope it's not that harvest dance down on the riverbank. My sister went last year, and she said she'd never seen such rowdiness. Said a fight broke out between two possums, and one gal, the wife of one or the other, got pushed onto a stump and knocked out four teeth. And they were pretty ones, too. None of this yellowness you find on most things that eat trash. 
The cat shuddered. No, she said. This is just a little get-together, a few friends, that type of thing. Will there be food? The baboon asked. Something, the cat sighed. I just don't know what. Of course it's hard, the baboon said. Everybody eating different things. You got one who likes leaves and another who can't stand the sight of them. Folks have gotten so picky nowadays, I just lay out some peanuts and figure they can either eat them or they don't. Now, I wouldn't like a peanut, the cat said. Not at all. Well, I guess you just have drinks then. The trick is knowing when to stop. <laughs> That's never been a problem for me, the cat boasted. I drink until I'm full, and then I push myself away from the table. Always have. Well, you've got sense then, not like some of them around here. The baboon picked a flea from the cat's head and stuck it gingerly between her teeth. Take this wedding I went to last Saturday, I think it was. Couple of marsh rabbits got married. You probably heard about it. The cat nodded. Now, I like a church service, but this was one of those write-your-own-vow sorts of things. Neither of them had ever picked up a pen in their life, but all of a sudden they're poets, right? Like that's all it takes, being in love. My husband and I wrote our own vows, the cat said, <laughs> defensively. Sure you did, countered the baboon, but you probably had something to say, not like these marsh rabbits, carrying on that their love was like a tender sapling or some damn thing. And all the while they had this squirrel off to the side, plucking at a harp, I think it was. I had a harp player at my wedding the cat said, and it was lovely. I bet it was, but you probably hired a professional, someone who could really play. This squirrel, I don't think she'd taken a lesson in her life. Just clawed at those strings, almost like she was mad at them. Well, I'm sure she tried her best, the cat said. The baboon nodded and smiled the way one must in the service industry. She'd planned to tell a story about a drunken marsh rabbit, the brother of the groom at last week's wedding, but there was no point in it now, not with this client anyway. Whatever she said, the cat disagreed with, and unless she found a patch of common ground, she was sure to lose her tip. You know, she said, cleaning a scab off the cat's neck, I hate dogs, simply cannot stand them. What makes you bring that up, the cat asked. <laughs> Just thinking, the baboon said. Some kind of spaniel mix walked in yesterday asking for a shampoo, and I sent him packing. Said, I don't care how much money you have, I'm not making conversation with anyone who licks his own ass. <laughs> and the moment she said it, she realized her mistake. Now, what's wrong with that, the cat protested. It's good to have a clean anus. Why, I lick mine at least five times a day. And I admire you for it, the baboon said. But you're not a dog. Meaning? On a cat, it's classy. The baboon said, there's a grace to it, but a dog, you know the way they hunker over, legs going every which way. Well, yes, the cat said, I suppose you have a point. Then they slobber and drool all over everything, and what they don't get wet, they chew to pieces. That, <laughs> they do, the cat chuckled, and the baboon relaxed and searched her memory for a slanderous dog story. The collie, the German shepherd, the spaniel mix she claimed to have turned away, they were all good friends of hers and faithful clients. But what would it hurt to pretend otherwise and cross that fine line between licking ass and simply kissing it? <laughs> Thank you.
That was stand-up and actor Carmen Lynch reading The Cat and the Baboon by David Sedaris. On this edition of Selected Shorts, we're listening to comedy and poetry that was written by or is beloved by the comedian Mike Birbiglia and the poet J. Hope Stein. As all of the material was performed live at Symphony Space on the same evening, we have wonderful introductions from the hosts themselves. In this segment, Stein reads one of her poems, introduces two additional poems, as well as the actors who perform those pieces. You'll want to hear what she has to say. It's succinct and personal, and really gives a sense of what to listen for in the verse. Body, I never knew I could love you. I never loved my body until she was inside it. I never loved my breasts until they made milk for her. I never understood why people took naked pictures of themselves until she was inside me. The taut and expanding skin over the relentless womb. The anti-gravitational breasts. They are the only naked photos you will find of me on my computer. Release them, I don't care. Release them for science. I'll just say this once and only to myself. I do not want to give up the power to feed my child with my body. I do not want to give up the power to be able to feed my child without a bowl or grain or utensil or dollar or bottle or government, this government, or job or faucet or jar. And on airplanes, we are a smooth operating machine during takeoffs and landings. Passengers come up to me and say, your baby, could solve world peace. She is the face of the ceasefire. It scares me to depend completely on the world around us to feed my child. What if we get lost and I forget to pack snacks? What if the economy dives and we have no money for food or a natural disaster or the dictator comes to power or some kind of attack or how will I feed her? And what about what bounces and knocks together when I sex? I don't want to give them up. Now we'll hear When I Tell My Husband I Miss the Sun He Knows by Paige Lewis from their wonderful book, Space Struck. I love how playful and romantic this piece is. It is filled with sensual images. Paige's poem will be read by Jane Kaczmarek. Selected shorts audiences will know her. She's a favorite here. She's also known for her work in theater and film, as well as the TV shows Playing House and Malcolm in the Middle. When I tell my husband I miss the sun, he knows what I really mean. He paints my name across the floral bedsheet and ties the bottom corners to my ankles. Then he paints another for himself. We walk into town and we play the shadow game, saying, oh, I'm sorry for stepping on your shadow. And please, please please be careful. My my shadow is caught in the wheels of your shopping cart. (laughs) It's all very polite. Our shadows get dirty, just like anyone's, so we take them to the laundromat, the one with the 1996 Olympic-themed pinball machine, and we watch our shadows warm against each other. We bring the shadow game home, and this is my favorite part. When we stretch our shadows across the bed, we get so tangled, my husband grips his own wrist, certain it's my wrist, and he kisses it. Now we'll hear Rain, New Year's Eve by Maggie Smith. Her books include... Goldenrod and Keep Moving. Her poem, Good Bones, from her book of the same title, brought people both hope and perspective in 2016 and was even read during Selected Shorts in 2018. I love the way Smith grounds the metaphysical in everyday scenes of motherhood. Reading that poem will be Kaneza Shaw, a dynamic writer and director and performer whose recent credits include Maze at the Shed and Triptych at the L.A. Philharmonic. She was also a 2021 Guggenheim Fellow for theater.
The rain is a broken piano, playing the same note over and over. My five-year-old said that. Already she knows loving the world means loving the wobbles. You can't shim. The creaks you can't oil silent. The jerry-rigged parts MacGyvered with twine and chewing gum. Let me love the cold rains plinking. Let me love the world the way I love my young son, not only when he cups my face in his sticky hands, but when roughhousing, he accidentally splits my lip. <laughs> Let me love the world like a mother. Let me be tender when it lets me down. Let me listen to the rain's one note and hear a beginner's song. J-Hope Stein read her poem, Body, I Never Knew I Could Love You. Jane Kaczmarek read, When I Tell My Husband I Miss the Sun, He Knows by Paige Lewis, and Kaneza Shal read Rain, New Year's Eve, by Maggie Smith. Each piece was introduced by J. Hope Stein. I'm Jane Curtin. When we return, Martin Scorsese, Ghosts, and the Power of Pizza. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Jane Curtin. This hour is chock full of jokes and poems from comedian Mike Birbiglia and poet J. Hope Stein, among others. If you missed any of the first half, fear not. You will find this show and many others on our website, selectedshorts.org. There, you'll find a subscribe to podcast button, as well as links to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. No more FOMO, as the kids say. Or, they did say. (sighs) I can't keep up. The next piece, titled New Client, comes from the very funny Simon Rich. He's a former Saturday Night Live writer who's gone on to produce both books, including his latest, New Teeth, as well as TV shows and movies based on his stories, such as Miracle Workers. The downtrodden, anxious everyman is played by our show's anchor, Mike Birbiglia. The supernatural force who joins him is played by a very funny actor from the original SCTV and series such as Great News. Yes, we're going to tell you who's reading that part, but we won't tell you who she plays and ruin the surprise. Here are Mike Birbiglia and Andrea Martin playing Simon Rich's 
new client. Albie Katz, founder and CEO of Bright Stars Talent, was great at signing actors. Unfortunately, he was less great at providing them with actual careers. The brightest star he'd ever imagined was a dancing chimpanzee named Mr. Mo, and he hadn't worked much since the formation of PETA. <laughs> the humans Albie signed hadn't fared much better. One hardworking man eked out a living as an ass double. The best the rest could hope for was to play a murdered corpse on CSI. Albie knew he was a hack, and he would have quit years ago if it hadn't been for his wife, Rose. Albie had proposed to her when they were still in high school, vowing to take care of her until the day she died. It was one of the few promises he'd kept, and he was determined not to break it. He couldn't afford full-time nursing care, but he still earned enough from his roster of corpses and asses to keep her well-fed and content. She couldn't drink wine anymore since it interfered with all of her medicines, but he'd found a non-alcoholic brand at Rite Aid, and every day he served her glass after glass on a silver-plated tray. She didn't talk much, but when he stooped down to kiss her, she closed her eyes and beamed, just like she had on their first date. Albie had just tucked her in for her afternoon nap when he heard someone knocking on the door. It started as an eager tap, but quickly intensified into a menacing thump. He didn't bother peeking through the peephole. He was 81 years old with stage four emphysema. Who else could it be? Death was taller than he expected, about eight foot six if you included the pointy hood. Are you LB Katz? He intoned in an unsettling baritone. Probably no use in denying it. Come on in, said Albie. Death followed him into the bungalow, stooping to get under the doorframe. Can I get you a drink? No! Are you sure? Albie grabbed a bottle of Rose's Rite Aid wine. This is great vintage, a grand crew from France. Happy to open it. Death held up an hourglass. Silence, mortal! Your time has come! Got it. I mean... <laughs> let me just say goodbye to Rose. He stepped into the bedroom. He looked down at his snoring wife. He was about to kiss her forehead when an idea occurred to him. It was a long shot, sure, but what did he have to lose? He reached into the closet and found his best blazer, the good luck shark skin he always wore to meetings. Then he cracked his neck, and he strolled back into the living room. Huh, he mumbled. Death glared at Albie, his red eyes burning like a pair of embers. What? Oh, nothing, Albie said, flicking his wrist. You probably wouldn't be interested. What is it, mortal? Growled the Reaper. Tell me! Well, uh, I'm a talent scout. <laughs> I represent actors, uh, features in TV mostly. Uh, he took out a business card and offered it up to death. The Reaper turned it over in his giant bony hand. Anyway, I was just... Curious if you'd ever considered performing. Ha! Ha! Death said sarcastically. No, I'm serious. I mean, there's something about you. You've got a certain quality. I mean, it's a, it's a presence. That's ridiculous. I'm not an actor. I mean, you've never even thought about it. No! Really? I just find that hard to believe. I mean, you're telling me you've never once performed in your entire life? Death was silent for a moment. His eyes were still burning, but with slightly less intensity than before. I mean, I did a little theater back in high school. <laughs> but that was a really long time ago. 
Oh, what kind of theater? It doesn't matter. It was a long time ago. It was stupid. Come on. I'm, I'm curious. Death shrugged his knobby shoulders. I guess the one thing I did that didn't totally suck was this production of Macbeth. Alby raised his bushy eyebrows. Whoa, you did Shakespeare. What part did you play? Death towed the carpet. Well, actually, if you must know, I played the part of Macbeth. Seriously? The lead? Death waved his bony hands in the air. It's no big deal. It's mostly just because no one else wanted to do it. No one? Well, I, I beat out a couple of guys, death allowed, but they weren't very good. His voice lowered. I mean, one guy was pretty good, and he'd done a lot of plays before, and it was my first time auditioning, and I got it over him, so, you know, that was cool. He shrugged again, but like I said, it was a long time ago. I don't know. It sounds like you're pretty good. Well, I mean, I was all right. Like, after that play, people were definitely like, you should pursue that. Like, if you look in my yearbook, it's all, see you on Broadway. You know, stuff like that. But what did they know? It was a long time ago. It was stupid. Listen, there's this script making the rounds right now. It's like a Scorsese thing, and he's looking for an actor who's over eight feet tall and sort of like a, with a baritone voice and eyes that burn, not too experienced, that kind of thing. And I know you've got a full-time job, but I'm sure he'd be grateful if you'd at least go and meet with him. A smile flashed across Death's face, which he quickly suppressed. I mean, uh... uh I guess it might be interesting to meet with him, just so I could have, like, you know, a funny story, you know, you know, as a goof. Albie nodded. Not even sure I'd even want to do it, Death stressed. Like, even if he wanted to cast me in a movie, it's not like it's my big dream to become some actor. No, no, of course I mean, not. I mean, I mean, I don't mean any offense to actors, Death clarified. It just seems like I had a silly life. It's completely silly, Albie confirmed, always being hounded by the press, people asking for autographs, trying to be your buddy. Yeah, yeah. Well, still, you know, it might be fun to meet with Scorsese as a goof, you know, just as a fun, stupid goof. Right. No, no, of course, as a goof. Gestured at the empty hourglass, of course, these meetings do take a little bit of time to set up. Death hesitated. Well, I, I guess I don't have to take you right this second. Albie grinned and whipped out a standard Bright Stars contract. Death's hands twitched anxiously as he flipped through the official-looking pages. Should I change my name? Is death too Jewish? We can discuss later. Death nodded and signed on the dotted line. Okay. So what now? Is it like a thing where you call me when there's something? Yes, I can call you. Cool, cool, cool. He started to leave, but stopped in the entryway. Uh, one other thing I might as well tell you about is that I also kind of play a little music, like mostly guitar, but also piano and bass. Good to know. And I took two years of tap. Death said quickly, okay, I'll let you get to work. So you'll call me, right? That's how it works. I'll call you. Okay, okay. He floated out the door and vanished in a haze of wispy smoke. 
Albie heard a rustling sound in the bedroom. He grabbed the Rite Aid wine, went inside, and kissed Rose softly on the cheek. Who are you talking to, sweetie, she asked. I just landed a new client. <laughs> oh, Albie, she said, beaming. You're the best in the biz. He poured out two glasses, and they clinked them together. I'm not bad, he said. That was Mike Birbiglia and Andrea Martin performing Simon Rich's story, New Client. I also read that story for Selected Shorts, and it is one of the most fun stories to read. But I just think Andrea Martin is such a wonderful performer, and I worked with her during Kate and Alley. They wanted to have a spin-off, and they thought Andrea would be a wonderful person to build a show around, so we did a pilot, and we were running through the studio, and at one point I had to get her out of my way. And I hip-checked Andrea, and I sent poor Andrea, who weighs nine pounds, flying across the studio. Oh, what a great sport she was and what fun it was to work with her. I just adore Andrea Martin. Anyway, though there are fewer laughs in our next piece, titled Grand Union, it also involves a supernatural visitation. It is by the novelist and essayist Zadie Smith, whose works include Swing Time, as well as The Recent Intimations. This tale of unexpected reunions is the title story from her first collection of short fiction. It is read by Kaneza Shaw, whom we heard earlier in the show. This is Grand Union by Zadie Smith. Having screamed at my six-year-old to the point that she threw herself down on her bed and wept, I felt the need to get out of the house and see my mother. She was dead and in heaven, but for convenience sake we met outside the chicken spot at the top of Landbrick Grove. It was, in the moment, the blackest place I could think of. We sat together on the steps of the Golden Dragon, Mandem and Galdem passed us by, heading inside for their stir-fry and their Sichuan. Mother and I regarded each other. For being dead, she looked pretty fantastic. Death could not wither her. It was merely one of a long line of things that could not wither her. She wore her dreads wrapped just right, high and impressive. Never ashy, her darkness shone. She looked the spit of Queen Nanny on the $500 bill. That is not a coincidence, she said, when I mentioned the resemblance. In death, I have become Nanny of the Maroons. That is, I have always been she, but now it is revealed. Figures, I said. And she admonished me for using an Americanism and asked if I was still living in those devilish parts. I had to confess I was, but had come all this way across an ocean just to converse with her spirit. Well, you're a sante now, she said, and I was glad to hear it, having always suspected as much. Still, I kissed my teeth to make clear that, like all warrior daughters, I wanted more from my warrior mother, much more, and would never get enough. My mother kissed her teeth in turn, signifying that she understood. Together we surveyed the scene. All around us was carnival detritus, red stripe cans, and abandoned yellow crusts of lamb patty, and broken whistles, and glittering press-on face jewelry, and filthy feathers, and friendly cards from the police, describing proper stop-and-search procedure, informing us of the limits of their powers. Oh, Carnival, while we dance in the August sun, it's wonderful, it's sticky with joy, it's the sweet flypaper of life. But then night arrives, the police hurry us home, we survey the devastated streets, we think, surely we're not going to put ourselves through all this shit again next year. 
Nanny has gone to carnival every year since 1972. Or maybe only I think that. The borders between me and everybody else have never been clear to me. Maybe all cycles must be respected. The women in our family, announced my mother, do not recognize the women in our family. Well, that seemed cheap and tautological to me, so I went inside to get some chicken. Though it's a Chinese place, it empathizes with its clientele, and that day they were offering inauthentic jerk rice and pea and two plastic forks. I watched the daughter of the establishment sigh as the mother of the establishment critiqued her styrofoam box closing technique in rapid Cantonese. And I once knew a girl called Hermione, whose mother would never sit down to eat. She went straight from cooking to cleaning. And if anyone tried to get her to the table, she said, oh, no, 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 I'm fine with my little plate here. And then she'd clean up after everybody and pick at the plate like a bird, one bite every half hour or so, till it was stone cold and a skin had grown over it, at which point she'd scrape whatever was left into the bin and wash up the little plate too. It was her way of showing love, and it was so exotic to me. I was in awe of it. I went to her funeral. 700 people stood up as one to chant. She always thought of others, never of herself. But you can only really know the blood you're swimming in. When I got back outside, my mother had assumed the position of an old Obeha woman, legs wide apart, skirt falling in between, toes splayed like a duck. Still, she looked fantastic. Many had been the times she'd eaten the food straight off my plate before I'd even raised my plastic fork. But I could see why the Arawaks once flocked to her. If you're on the edge of extinction, nothing less than Nanny will do. Yet you can't sing a note, I said to my mother. I was finally getting to the point. And the weird thing is, my daughter sings with soul, truly with soul. And I suppose I'm worried about what it all means. Here, my mother and all of the other Obeha women in the neighborhood paused to laugh long and loud at the way worries will sprout on wet, fertile ground, yet rarely care to flower in the kind of drought conditions they themselves had known. Now, if you ask Billie Holiday, my mother said, with her eyes closed, she would tell you, no one sings the word hunger like I do, or the word love. That's not a defense of anything, clarified my mother. That's just a true fact. Although I'm not a Billie fan myself, daughter, as you know, Radigan is my musical love, then, now, and forever. I stood up. I told her I loved her. I wandered over to the Grand Union Canal, which may well be that river of milk which all the daughters of the world are looking for whenever they go to the hardware store for milk, even though they know full well there's no milk at the hardware store. Hardware, Americanisms everywhere, but also love and recognition of history, and the inconceivably broad shadow cast by the Blue Mountains, on top of which you'll find my maroon grandfather, never dying, undead, totally undead, living eternally among his chickens and goats, his parcels of contested land, his dozens and dozens and dozens of out-the-house children among whom a few bold girls now make their way down the shady side of the mountain, following the tread of my mother and her mother and her mother, moving with necessary speed, not always holding hands. That was Zadie Smith's story, Grand Union, performed by Kaneza Shal. Smith's writing always has such elegance. 
She doesn't often incorporate fantastical elements in her writing, but when she does, she weaves it so seamlessly into the real world that we forget it's even supernatural. All of our pieces in this hour were presented during a night of jokes and poems with the comedian Mike Birbiglia and the poet J. Hope Stein. Now let's hear some more poetry. Again, here's J. Hope Stein on stage at Symphony Space alongside performers we've heard earlier, Carmen Lynch and Kaneza Schall. Each piece was introduced by J. Hope Stein. I'm going to read a poem called Ween. When Una and I finally did Ween, I wanted to make her part of the decision so she didn't like feel like it was just happening to her. This poem came out of that communication and kind of loops in my head when I think about anything that I'm trying to give up that I don't want to give up. It's from the book, The New One. Ween. A little less and a little less, and a little less, and then no more. But tonight, a little more. A little less, and a little less, and a little less, and then no more. But tonight, a little, a little more. Now we'll hear What I Didn't Know Before by Ada Lamone. Her books include The Carrying, Bright Dead Things, and Sharks in the River. She's won a National Book Critics Circle Award and was a finalist for the National Book Award. Lamone's poems are arresting. When I read them, I get caught in this delirious loop, which is my favorite place to be and I instantly reread to try to trace what just happened to me. Carmen Lynch will return to perform What I Didn't Know Before by Ada Lamone. What I didn't know before was how horses simply give birth to other horses. Not a baby by any means, not a creature of liminal spaces, but a four-legged beast hell-bent on walking, scrambling after the mother. A horse gives way to another horse, and then suddenly there are two horses. (laughs) Just like that. That's how I loved you. You off the long train from Red Bank, carrying a coffee as big as your arm, a bag with two computers swinging in it unwieldily at your side. I remember we broke into laughter when we saw each other. What was between us wasn't a fragile thing to be coddled, cooed over. It came out fully formed, ready to run. Now we'll hear Praise the Rain by Joy Harjo. She's the Poet Laureate of the United States and the author of important works such as Poet Warrior, Crazy Brave, and She Had Some Horses. I chose Praise the Rain for the way it envelops and surrounds the senses and dismantles the daily narrative of the mind. Kaneza Shaw will read Praise the Rain by Joy Harjo. Praise the rain. Praise the rain. The seagull dive. The curl of plant. The raven talk. Praise the hurt. The house slack. The stand of trees. The dignity. Praise the dark. The moon cradle. The sky fall. The bear sleep. Praise the mist the warrior name, the earth eclipse, the fired leap, praise the backwards, upward sky, the baby cry, the spirit food, praise canoe, the fish rush,
the hole for frog, the upside down. Praise the day, the cloud cup, the mind flat. Forget it all. Praise crazy. Praise sad. Praise the path on which we're led. Praise the roads on earth and water. Praise the eater and the eaten. Praise beginnings. Praise the end. Praise the song and praise the singer. Praise the rain. It brings more rain. Praise the rain. It brings more rain. That was Ween, written and performed by J. Hope Stein. What I Didn't Know Before, by Ada Limon, performed by Carmen Lynch. And Praise the Rain, by Joy Harjo, performed by Kaneza Shal. In the final segment of this show dedicated to jokes and poems, we return to comic Mike Berbiglia. This is another essay from his book, The New One, about children, gluttony, and the perfect food. It's called Slice of Life. One day I take my daughter Una to Sal's Pizzeria on our corner. I order two slices and we sit at a table and eat. She's thrilled. I say, Una, do you like the pizza? She says, pee pee, which I'm pretty sure means pizza. And also, yes. <laughs> When we finish our slices, she says, pee pee. She wants more pizza. And also, yes. <laughs> I'm not sure what to do. Her mom said one slice, but she didn't say anything about two slices. How much pizza can a one year old eat? The battle cry grows stronger, pee pee. <laughs> I can see this look in her eye that I recognize. She wants more pizza, and she wants it now. I have a pizza problem, which is to say, when I see a pizza, I get excited, I perk up, I think, oh, I'd like to have that pizza inside of me. <laughs> I don't know if it's the circularity or the softness or the warmth, but it's almost sexual. I wouldn't have sex with pizza, but if I ate it in private, I wouldn't mention it to my wife. <laughs> I'm even excited by the word pizza because it looks like a pizza. Each of the Z's has two slices in it. The A is a slice. It's five slices in one word, which is a literary device I invented called Anamata Pizza. If that's not a selected shorts joke, I don't know what is. I like pizza so much, I get excited when I see the word plaza. My wife, Jen, has never called me out on looking at other women as we walk down the street, but she has called me out on looking at other pizza while I am eating pizza. <laughs> It's a problem. Because not only is pizza chock full of sugar and salt and cheese and fat and bread, but I can only view pizza as a single serving. When in fact, more often than not, it's designed for three or four people. That division somehow doesn't compute for me. My brain thinks one pizza for one person. Pee pee! There's no logical way to partition a pizza. A typical configuration is three people sharing an eight slice pie, which doesn't divide evenly. The subject of a documentary I'm working on called Three People, Eight Slices. The three-person eight-slice paradox is something pizza scholars have puzzled over for decades. You have three people, and the first move is everyone eats two slices and then awaits further instructions. <laughs> Hopefully there's a hero in the group who steps forward and says, I'm not having any more. The proper etiquette is to genuflect in the direction of this deity. But if no one gives up their third slice, the only way to proceed is to cut the remaining two slices into thirds, 
giving each person two-thirds of one slice. You actually may need a fourth to do the cutting if you want a fair cut. The pizza slicer is like the card dealer at the casino. Watch the hands. Also, don't be fooled by what I call the pizza racer, the guy who thinks whoever races through his first two slices wins the third slice. And beware of the salad negotiator, someone who says something like, well, you had more salad, to which you must respond, I will kill you with this salad fork. (laughs) Pizza for me is a sport, a sport for people who aren't good at sports. And my problem is enabled by my proximity to pizza. I live in Brooklyn, where there's a pizzeria on every corner. There's so much pizza that even bad pizza tries to get in on the action. There's a Domino's pizza right by my subway stop. And sometimes I fantasize about posting up in front of the Domino's all day and explaining other options. I've never read that aloud to a group of people. And it makes me laugh because it's true. And you're laughing like it's a joke. It's a thing I think about. Like that might be a good way to spend a day. This is not meant to be judgmental. I don't believe there's such a thing as winners and losers in life, but I think if you live in Brooklyn and order pizza from Domino's, you're a loser. (laughs) I don't believe in heaven or hell, but I believe if you order a Brooklyn Domino's pizza, you are going to hell. (laughs) This is based in Scripture. In the Old Testament, there's a passage where the serpent appears to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Serpent offers Eve a bite of his Domino's pizza. You probably know this. Eve says, no thanks. I spoke with God. He said, it's the worst pizza created in the last six days. Serpent says, look, it's 3 a.m. Nothing else is open. Eve takes a bite. Here we are. It was the original sin. Beyond the perfection of the food item itself, pizza is a band-aid for so many problems. I forgot to make dinner. Order pizza. I'm lonely. Order pizza. I have no utensils. Order a pizza. Pizza is a food I've called on in a jam my whole life. When I've been told by an audience that nothing I've presented to them is funny or entertaining... Pizzas told me I liked it. (laughs) And you know what, Mike? I like you. Pizza's not just the perfect blend of ingredients, but of nostalgia. As a kid, I spent countless half days of school with Michael Cavanaugh and Matt Beaton playing scrappy backyard football and eating way too much pizza at one of three Shrewsbury pizzerias within a half-mile radius. Pizza in movies, pizza in friends, pizza in Jen pizza at birthdays, pizza after my wedding, and now pizza and Nuna. The combinations of pizza and people and things I love are countless. The memories are vivid and endless. When I think about changing my diet because of type 2 diabetes, it's the thought of cutting out pizza that crushes me. Then one day I have a realization. I can't stop eating pizza, but I can eat one slice. This isn't based on a doctor recommendation. It's a logic that occurs to me that the amount of bread and sauce and cheese in a single slice isn't the problem. It's the gluttony of eating eight slices that's turning my body into the size of eight people. (laughs) So I do it. Change my personal pizza policy. One slice every week, sometimes every two weeks. One single dinky slice. And I love it. I'm going to risk offending pizza purists and say I love it more. The idea that I can taste greatness but resist gluttony, that I can sip the richest nectar of the gods but not drink everyone's syrup. (laughs) Within six months, I lose 10 pounds. My cholesterol goes down, my blood sugar as well. Not where I need it to be, but enough that I know I'm moving in the right direction. 
I start to apply this principle to other parts of my life. I don't need to tour 112 cities. I can tour 20, just a slice. I don't need to work seven days a week. Some weeks I can work three, just a slice. It's part of a larger strategy to become a whole member of my own family. One slice, that'll do. As for Una, she gets the second slice. That was Mike Birbiglia performing Slice of Life from his book, The New One, which he co-authored with his partner, the poet J-Hope Stein. Speaking of food briefly, chocolate. Does anyone out there understand chocolate the way that I understand chocolate? The fact that you could actually make an entire meal with chocolate in every course, and it would be legitimate. Think about it. What a gift. And with all this talk of food, our own smorgasbord of jokes and poems is finished. We hope you laughed, you cried, and otherwise appreciated the lovely contrast between Berbiglia and Stein. If opposites attract, they might just balance one another, too. I'm Jane Curtin. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings were recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the Short Story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchett Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Consolidated Edison Company of New York, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vita Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodson's Fund. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.